From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, highlights from our most recent Cape Fear Conversations event, which Waterline Brewing graciously hosted earlier this month. This year, we're focusing all our quarterly conversations on the focus areas of the Cape Fear Community Endowment. They include education, community safety, health equity, and finally, today's topic, community development. Our panelists for this event were experts who look into every aspect of housing development. For-profit developer McKay Siegel, nonprofit developer Pastor Rob Campbell, environmentalist Kemp Burdett, planning commission member J.C. Lyle, and former city planner Glenn Harbeck. You'll be hearing from all of them later. Oh, and we pulled a member of the endowment staff for good measure. We'll start off the panel with her, asking Terry Burhans, the Development Network Officer for the New Hanover Community Endowment, to explain where the endowment came from and its vision for development and housing in the county. So for those of you who don't know, in 2020, the sale of the hospital, the New Hanover Regional Medical Center um, that was owned by the county was sold to Novant. Uh, the county invested $1.3 million. That's how the endowment was formed. That money was set aside to benefit the community. The audio got a little garbled for that section, but she described community development as awareness of affordable housing and infrastructure that supports affordable housing. It also encompasses community development through small businesses, creating living wage jobs, and education programs to qualify for those jobs. I would love to kind of open this up to the entire panel to lay out the ties between developing housing and housing affordability, if anybody wants to take that question. Was that too open of an invitation? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll jump on that um, grenade there. That's McKay Siegel. He's a development partner at East West Partners. The, the obvious answer to that is that it's, uh, it's day one economics, right? It's a supply and demand equals price. And I, I think that as a community in, in, you know, on both sides of the political spectrum, we're starting to understand that the more housing supply, uh, the, the better we can balance out price. And that's that's generally true. There's some other things, obviously, that are going to drive up the cost of development, um, but it, it has led to, in recent years, um, several YIMBY, uh, yes, in my backyard type of movements, uh, surprisingly for people on the far left of the spectrum, um, who are saying, listen, we need density, we need housing supply if we're going to, uh, you know, uh, drive down the price, right, supply, demand, demand is going to stay the same. If we drive up supply, then price is going to come down. Um, and I think hopefully as a community, we're starting to understand that. So that's kind of the supply side. In terms of generally, I think all of us know that new apartments tend to be expensive. Uh, they're often called luxury apartments. Uh, and I think a lot of people kind of raise their hackles a little bit when they see these new apartments going up and then developers are saying, this is going to make things cheaper, even though it costs so much more money than a lot of people can per perhaps afford. So I would be curious if you could talk about where development, well, like where is it expensive and where could money be injected to kind of bring down those costs? First of all, you will never hear me or any of my projects use the word luxury ever again. It's a <laughs> word I've been beat over the head with way too many times. Uh, are these cabinets luxury? Is this floor luxury? Is this toilet luxury? Is everything else? All right, so it, no luxury. The, the problem with new supply of apartments is that it has become so um, expensive to develop, and there's a lot of reasons for that, predominantly that we're paying people a living wage, which is, which is fantastic. Um, however, where five or six years ago you could build a, a unit for $200,000, we're at $260,000. 
So you're at 20 to 25% increase really just since 2019. Um, and obviously if it costs more to build, it, it's going to cost more to rent. There's a, there's a lot of other things that go into that. And, and uh, you may have seen me occasionally in the news getting pretty passionate about some of the things that they try and lay at developers' feet as far as uh, added infrastructure, added costs, um, things that are just, you know, feel preemptive or something that the developer can pay for. And that's all great and dandy other than it drives up the cost, so it drives up the price of the, of, of the rent. Um, so uh, unfortunately, the short answer to your question is it, it has got to be on that expensive side of the spectrum just to cover the cost of, of unsubsidized development. I'm going to just mention this concept called filtering here just for context. So there's a concept called filtering where essentially new supply in the housing market is taken up by people who can afford that supply. And then people who can't quite afford it, maybe there's more options that are at the lower end of the scale that are then available to them. So when you have a crunch and limited supply, what you end up seeing is that lower end apartments, maybe something that was built in 1970, they are seeing rent increases. So I've done stories where I interview people, they live in an apartment that was built in 1974, and they saw their rent jump $250 from one year of lease to the next. So when you don't have added supply, then you end up with the supply that is there increasing in cost. It's supply and demand. So that is worth noting when it comes to this as well. Next up, J.C. Lyle, the former director of WARM and chair of the Wilmington Planning Commission. Um, we make a mistake when we just look at housing in a silo. So when we talk about development um, of housing, there's a lot of factors uh, involved in that. Uh, more, this is more about the first question. The location of the homes are going to help determine the transportation costs for the residents. The um, utilities are a factor. So there's a lot of things that go into housing affordability, and housing impacts so many other issues, the people's health, sick days from work and school. So when we focus on just on housing and building more, it's at the point in our, in our community where it's time to, and I think people are, looking at housing as more of, this is a foundation for our entire society. Every person, every human being, needs a place to live, and that home impacts how they interact with the rest of the world. And so it's not all the responsibility of developers. The developers didn't cause this problem. <laughs> that was for you, McKay. I got you, buddy. The developers didn't cause this problem. It's a society problem. It's bigger than this, way bigger than, um, even bigger than incentives in our land development codes. It's a problem that has been created over generations through a variety of systems, and it's going to take addressing all that to really fix it. When we talk about developing and, and putting more uh, units in place, which is so critical, it's not going to bring housing costs down that much, really, but it's going to help them from continuing to skyrocket. So starting out with supply and demand and adding on some of these other um, issues uh, and so that we can... We can really address this holistically uh, and not make it just about the structure of the home. Pastor Rob Campbell chimed in next with discussion of his recent rejection at the New Hanover County Planning Board. Listen for the moment when County Commissioner Rob Zappel walks in. I agree that um, it is a systemic problem. I also believe that um, the people who mainly have the problem can't solve the problem. I think there are four things we need uh, to do affordable housing, planning, partnership, political will, 
and persistence. Planning is the most important thing. I read somewhere, write the vision, make it plain, that you can share it with people and run after it. Uh, the public-private partnership is critical, critical. It can't be done by one or the other. It has to be a collaboration. Uh, I think that even for profits, if there's enough profit <laughs> in the proposal, can find ways that they don't make as much profit, but they do something uh, societal, a societal uh, enterprise, if you will. Uh, but the political will, uh, politics determines who gets what. And um, with all the planning and the partnership, if you um, go to a planning board, as I did the other night, we have a need for 13 to 15,000 units of housing. I was trying to raise um, the unit count from 68 to 184 at first. And then uh, I understood that that wasn't going to make it, so I lowered it to 128. And after answering all the questions, it still was more of a question of the needs of a few over the needs of many. Um, because if we need 13 to 15,000, and the reason I'm um, waffling on the number, it depends on which report you read. And um, so it, it's going to take political will to do it. I'm glad that Robert Zappel is walking in the room, right? As I said, it's going to take political will for affordable housing. Rob Zappel, good to see you, sir. Unintended. <laughs> and persistence. This is not for the faint of heart. You gotta, you gotta want it because it's not for you. It's gotta be done for those who can't do it for themselves. Here's Glenn Harbeck, former Wilmington city planner. I was struck by comments from both JC and, uh, and Pastor Campbell about the society and generational issues. Over the last 75 years, we as a nation and society have decided that there's really only two acceptable forms of housing, and that's single family or an apartment complex. And we've systematically done away with a lot of other options for affordable housing that were the backbone of this nation until about the mid-20th century. And now uh, the entire housing industry, through no fault of their own, has restructured and has structured themselves to specialize really in either single-family homes or apartment complexes, or to some extent, some townhouses. Starting in the 1960s, most local governments responded to community preferences by making our zoning ordinances prohibitive to any form of housing other than single-family or apartment complexes. So what I'm talking about are affordable housing types that many, many, many millions of Americans uh, benefited from until about the mid-20th century, and those include, don't cringe, apartments, granny flats, duplexes, triplexes, certainly townhouses, uh, but we aren't witness, cottage courts, housing above the store. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're missing, and I, I can talk about what the city has done with our comprehensive plan and our zoning ordinance to rectify that problem, but I'm going to save that for later and let somebody else talk. Uh, so I want to go back to the development process a little bit, speaking specifically to Rob and McKay over here. 
Uh, there are specific points where government can sometimes inject money to reduce the cost of building housing. And they can either do this for private developers or for developers who are making affordable housing using low-income housing tax credits. Can you talk a little, a little bit about some of those injection points and where you've seen them done in this community? Well, I am um, the recipient of uh, $1.5 million from the uh, county commissioner's to build the 68 units of affordable housing. Trying to get the funding for affordable housing, you have to engage the government. From a person like me, I, I don't have the finances to do it. Uh, but here's the other thing. Uh, most of the low-income tax credit projects you can apply for, you can't even apply for them if you've never done one. You have to find a partner who has done one, so the the bridge or the barrier to getting into it is uh, is prohibitive. And then finding the resources, depending on the political climate of our community, um, I think I, I think our county commissioners have really moved more toward uh, endorsing affordable housing, as evidenced by the the loan that they gave us. But the point is, I think the, the government has to be knowledgeable about the process. You can't even get the financing until you get the zoning. So in, if, you, if you understand the process, you wouldn't ask that question. You would know the process. So you wouldn't be so cavalier about saying no. Um, you would be informed. And I think we have to do our part to inform the government so we can have the public-private partnership. Cor correct. Yeah, there, there's a whole lot of misconceptions about how, uh, how these things get financed, where the risk is, uh, what the payoff is. If I had a dollar for every public official that looked me in the eye and said, I know how much money you're going to make on this thing, uh, which, is, which is not good. And, and as a matter of fact, you're experiencing that as a purely non as a, as a guy who runs a church. I, I mean, if they're going to say that to your face, what do you think they say to me? Um, <laughs> But th there's, there's a lot. What you're talking about is the entitlement risk, right? So if, if we go and wrap up a piece of land and I say, okay, I think I can build uh, 300 apartments on this piece of land, then I still have to go take it through the zoning process, uh, which Glenn could explain better than I do. I gotta get it approved by staff, and then I gotta go to the planning board, that may take three months, and then I gotta go to, um, then I gotta go in front of council, make my case, that may take another three sessions, four sessions, however many. So all of a sudden, I'm nine months down the road, and I don't even know if I can build what, what I'm, planning to build there, what the price that I'm paying for the land, I still am uncertain about that, right? And there's a, there's a, we could, I could, I could talk for two hours about some of the ways that we should fix that thing. But if, if you are going to give money, if, if the question is, if, if you're going to give money into private development or into, into development, uh, be, I guess, be a private or, or uh, low income, where would it be best? So the way that purely low income, so LIHTC projects, which is which would be 100% like your thing, which uh, projects get financed usually is by institutional funds who have a charitable, uh, you know, a, a social uh, ESG type of fund, right? And that comes with a lot of different strings, as you would imagine. They would say, okay, if you're going to do this, if you're going to use 40 million dollars out of out of Wells Fargo's fund for this, then it's going to come. Then you need to do these reporting standards. You need to um, have these building standards, you need to apply for these codes, you need to have these inspectors, it becomes a, a, a lot more difficult and it has a lot of strings attached. The other things that those funds don't like to do is to have a partial amount of 
units. In other words, I can't build 100 units and say, okay, 30 of these will be um, low income. They, they're just not set up. There, there, there was a time when you could condo those out. That's no more. As, as far as I understand it, you can't even condo it out. I could maybe separate a whole building, you know, and, and which I think is, for a lot of reasons, is the worst way to go about it. I wouldn't want to say, okay, here's the 30 uh, affordable units over here. They've all got red doors on them, right? And here's, uh, here's where we put all the rich people up, right, like on the other side. I think that's very bad practice. However, the way it gets financed usually is set up that way. I will say uh, I've seen in other cities, I used to work in Portland as a reporter, uh, the city would say, okay, well, we'll pay your system development charges or we'll help you set up your utilities or we'll help you with this process if you give us 10% of your units are affordable. So whereas LIHTC requires 100% of the units to be affordable, like you mentioned, city government, county government, the endowment, these organizations might have a little more flexibility in saying, we're going to kind of make a trade here <laughs> and this is how much I'm putting in to get this number of units that are affordable to people who make 60% of the area median income. Uh, so those would be folks who work in restaurants, that kind of thing. I, I would add one thing to that. Um, there are other opportunities besides the LIHTX, uh there's the 4% bond deal, but it's the, the threshold is 200 units. And then if the cost pro forma uh, pencils out, then you can build that project. And, and it's all, it really comes down, to, in my opinion, to political will. That was Pastor Rob Campbell talking about efforts to build affordable housing and the challenges in rezoning properties in New Hanover County. When we come back from the break, we'll hear from Kemp Burdett, the Cape Fear Riverkeeper, about where it does and doesn't make sense to develop in New Hanover County. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Today, we're hearing highlights from WHQR's Cape Fear Conversation Panel on Development. This conversation is framed around how to develop an affordable and enjoyable community in New Hanover County. And we invited staff from the New Hanover Community Endowment to join the panel and to listen in. Next, we hear from Kemp Burdett, the Cape Fear Riverkeeper. Later, we'll hear from Wilmington Planning Commission Chair J.C. Lyle. I want to get into here a little bit of discussion about some of the arguments against new development that come up. Um, I know there's a lot of environmental concerns. People are worried about traffic. So uh, what are some of the arguments against development? Maybe if you have particular projects that, Kemp, for example, you've maybe voiced opposition to, and then what are the types of projects that have less of that environmental or societal impact, and where are they? <laughs> where could they go? So I'll start with uh, an example that's recent and, and maybe obvious, and, and that would be the, the two parcels of land on the west bank of the river that, that we you know, adamantly opposed um, the planned development of uh, three high-rise towers um, on Point Peter and a hotel spa on Eagles Island. Um, so th you know, the issue here is, is New Hanover County is small, um, it's wedged between the Atlantic Ocean and the largest uh, river in the state. Um, and we're the second most densely populated county in the state, so very little land when compared to other areas to develop. Uh, and there are absolutely, positively, 
places where we should not build. There, there are probably no places where we can't build uh, from like a human ingenuity perspective. I mean, you can put something in the ground almost anywhere, but there are absolutely places where we should not be building. And Point Peter and Eagles Island, in our opinion, in my opinion, were two of, of the top of that list um, because they are extremely low. Um, they are, in some ways, um, getting lower. Sea level rise is happening. Sea level rise is projected to be about two feet by 2050. Uh, before the mortgage would be paid on a unit that was built there, before a single generation could pass. And so you're looking at land that would be inaccessible uh, by the time you got close to paying your mortgage off. So, um, And there are lots of other places like that as well. To your point about are there places where, you know, maybe you can build, maybe you, you should be looking, maybe it would have less impact. Uh, and, and, you know, I am not a, a builder and, and I am not nearly as um, knowledgeable on some of this stuff as many of the other panels here. But what I do know is that when you find uh, infill opportunities, when you find places where, you know, the, the impact of, of you know, impervious surfaces have been there for a long, long time that, you know, finding a way to turn that space into new housing, you know, though it may be more expensive is a much better option than uh, clearing new land, especially new, extremely sensitive land like Point Peter. And the impervious surfaces, that's an issue because of the flooding risk. If it's able to drain, then you're going to have the water kind of not accumulate. But if you have a bunch of concrete there, it's just going to go splooshing into the next property over, right? So that's kind of the concern there? It, it's an issue about flooding. It's also an issue about water quality. Yeah. Um, so, you know, clearing new uh, land that could serve as a, as a way to treat uh, water and paving that or roofing that is, is going to, you know, weaken water quality in an area, whereas rebuilding on an area that's already impervious, you're not going to have as much difference. And I would go even further and say that, you know, in, in, a, in an ideal situation, when you redevelop an area, then you bring that area new ways of treating water. There are a lot of innovative technologies that can take an area that has been paid for a long time and actually make that area uh, do a better job of, of filtering stormwater. Uh, and, and that costs money. Um, and, and that is you know, probably a big concern for developers. JC, what do you think? Sure. The most uh, effective solution would be something we actually are asked to do a lot on um, planning commission, and we are usually asked to roll up Interstate 40 and not let anyone else move here. <laughs> that might help a little bit, but um, if that doesn't work, then we have we need to pick any two of these three options: low density, saving the environment, and housing affordability. But we just can, we can only pick two. So what usually gets the boot is low density. The point is we need to go up because people are continuing to move here. And um, if we keep the sprawl, if we keep going out, that's going to eat up a lot more of our land, eat up a lot more of our vegetation that cleanses um, our stormwater runoff. And it's almost counterintuitive um, when you think of uh, putting so many apartments or cottage developments inside the city limits, there's so much development here. It's going to increase traffic so much. That's kind of what is the um, immediate 
reaction to all the development you drive by every day. But putting people closer to services, that's how we keep um, people off the roads more. I grew up in Virginia, and we used to see these signs coming out of D.C. If you, if you lived here, you'd be home by now. If you're just tuning in, that was J.C. Lyle with the Wilmington Planning Commission speaking at WHQR's Cape Fear Conversation on Development. Terry Burhands from the New Hanover Community Endowment speaks next. So um, community engagement is a big part of this conversation, right? Like we talk a lot about policy, we talk a lot about governance, and, you know, really talking to the community, engaging in the community, understanding what the community wants and the needs. I'm going to sort of comment by asking a question. Kelly, how did you get here today? How did I get here? Mm -hmm. I biked here. So are we really talking to the people who are living in the community to understand what their preference of transportation, their preference in parks, their preference in local entertainment, things that they want to be able to walk to, right? Really understanding the, the younger generation and what they want and what they need and letting their voice be heard in that conversation. I want to go back to the discussion about less impactful forms of development in this region. So we talked a little bit about infill and redevelopment. Uh, I'd like to have the opportunity to discuss what that looks like, what barriers are in our way for redeveloping in certain parts of the city, particularly. Um, I will note that there's plenty of areas, if you go through downtown Wilmington or other parts of Wilmington, where you see land that used to have something on it, and it's a derelict building, and you wonder why <laughs> with how much housing costs in this area. So I would love to hear from JC and Kemp and all of you, really, about what is standing in the way of redevelopment and how that could be improved? Well, some of the um, regulations we've identified and, and changed in Land Development Code include loosening up the stormwater, um, regulations around redevelopment. Obviously, having the infrastructure right there really helps with the project costs, and so we encourage that as much as we can. Where there's the infill, the neighbors sometimes are very um, invested in what um, might go there, so we hear from them. And in a growing, thriving city, you're gonna tend to encourage a little more density than maybe the surrounding area um, when there's an infill project. So sometimes there's some um, public objection. The other thing that, um, we experienced a lot actually in my day job with uh, renovating how homes um, is heirs property. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes there's an unlimited number of people that own these older properties. So it's challenging to get a hold of folks who you know own about 10% of the, the home. And there might be 20 or 30 relatives that own that piece of property and one of them's really holding on and, um, and is really uh, has some sentimental value. So. It depends on the project, but those are a few of the top ones. McKay, you looked excited to talk about this. I'm excited to talk about development in general. Um, <laughs> so, so we do uh, urban infill. They tend to be incredibly complicated, very often money-losing projects uh, for a lot of reasons. One, uh, you know, you first just talk about public-private and the number of strings attached and the amount of time and the contracts where you try and go between a, a private entity and then an entity that's under public scrutiny. Um, I used to send emails to the city that were like, hey, just don't tell the people that we found Blackbeard's buried treasure and make sure that we don't share that with them because I knew that people were regularly combing our emails, which if you're trying to run a construction job is terribly frustrating. Um, so there's a lot of barriers to doing things like that in the public-private realm. 
Also, urban infill tend to be environmentally distressed sites, um, meaning that somebody at some point in time was doing, and in our case, it was like they were making turpentine on the site, which is about the worst thing you could possibly do for the soil. So you have to remediate all that. There, there are state um, requirements for remediation, and, and you know they say, well, put it through the brownfield program. Okay, well, there's another two years of time, and and also by the way, nobody's making money on brownfield program. If they, if there was like a big profit center to be made on brownfield sites. People would be arbitraging those. They'd be cleaning them up and flipping them. It just doesn't, it unfortunately doesn't work that way. Um, so there, there are uh, public and environmental barriers to that. The other thing that, that we have particularly here, um, and, and just to back up for a second, the best thing that we could do for the environment would be to take all 250,000 residents, uh, clear 10 acres of land, and build a 5,000-story skyscraper and put us all there and then return the rest of the thing to the woods. Seriously, that would, be the, that would be the best thing that we could possibly do for the environment, would be to concentrate everybody on top of each other, just theoretically. The things that stop us from going higher uh, tend to be the cost of construction after about five stories, which you have to switch. Really, after about three stories, the construction type changes in regards to the amount of wood that you have to use. Um, but then after five stories, uh, you have to switch to steel and concrete. And we just aren't at a part in our market where that is supported. Uh, as far as rent goes in very many places, um, River Place, for instance, sort of sort of scraped by as far as what we could charge versus what it, um, what the construction cost was. So after a certain height level, it, it becomes uneconomical to build. Um, so you're, you're really capped off at about five stories as far as, as, far as urban infill goes here, um, which, is, which is another one of those things that's cost prohibitive. And then, and then also just neighborhood pushback. Is there a place where an injection of public money would help make it easier to redevelop on a site like that? So the, so the city actually has more flexibility, particularly on Brownfield's um, sites. They can apply for grants that private developers are not able to. So if the city, uh, you know, for instance, the Gateway site, that site the city could apply for a half a million dollar grant to clean up the land and then also transfer the tax benefit downstream to the developer to do that. While the city still owns it, they can do that but that's a grant that I couldn't apply for with the state because I'm not, I'm not them. That was developer McKay Siegel, a partner with East West Partners, speaking on WHQR's Cape Fear Conversations panel on development. Stay tuned to hear more highlights after the break. listening to The Newsroom on WHQR, I'm Kelly Knoyer. Today, we're listening to highlights from our Cape Fear conversation on development. Before we hear the rest of the panel, I want to provide a little context. We spent some time talking about the differences between workforce housing aimed at middle-income residents making 80% to 150% of the area median income and affordable housing, which is largely aimed at service workers and counts as around 60% of the area median income. For reference, last year HUD set 60% AMI in Wilmington at just under $38,000 a year for a single adult household. 
Most often, we describe these two categories in really broad stereotypes. Workforce housing is for teachers and police and nurses, and affordable housing serves bartenders and waiters and other service industry providers. But Terry Burhans with the New Hanover Community Endowment wanted to add another category to the discussion. That also includes the artists and musicians in our community that, that really give our community the sense of place that it has, and they're oftentimes not mentioned in that conversation. So. Recent college graduates that are applying mm -hmm. for jobs. I hear all the time about how recent college graduates, folks who grew up in this community, have to leave to work somewhere else, and maybe they come back here to retire. I hear about that all the time from folks on the north side. So I would um, also say that it doesn't matter what your income is. If more than 30% is going into your housing costs, you're considered cost burden. And in New Hanover County, that's roughly 34% of the people living in our county. So um, we get caught up in definitions a lot, and we attach a lot of that to HUD. But if we're looking at our whole community, that affects anybody who's paying more than that. That's a metric that's tracked annually, by the way, by the North Carolina Housing Coalition. Luckily, JC provided me this data earlier today, so it's right at hand. 35% of New Hanover County residents are cost burden, like you said. It's 53% of renters, and you've maybe seen in the headlines recently, it's become over 50% of renters nationally across the entire United States. So while this feels like a really local problem, this is a national problem. Former city planner Glenn Harbeck added that owning a car costs the average household $1,000 a month, so there's more than one way to skin a cat. If you can cut a one-car household down to a no-car household, that also saves $12,000 a year. And if you look at the, the kind of household incomes we've been talking about here this afternoon, $12,000 over the course of a year is a huge amount of money. So, you know, what does that mean to us in the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County? If we can build, you know, we have conversations all the time in our area about our public transit, about our bus system. And the common view of our bus system is, yeah, the bus system should serve our developments. Well, that's backwards. Our, our development patterns should be arranged to make public transit more financially viable. And I will say, uh, the bicycle I rode here cost me about $150 a year to maintain. Just saying. <laughs> well, and Kelly, I mean, what's, what's fascinating about this, as I sit here and, and I'm looking at it from 30,000 feet, we're talking about development today, but development can't, it can't happen in a vacuum, to JC's point, to Glenn's point. And, you know, I would almost encourage and invite a, a conversation around building affordable communities as opposed to just units and housing. I think that's really where that innovation and that creativity and, and um, really building that sense of place can come into the conversation. And Kemp, are there environmental considerations with this that you might want to talk about? with designing communities that incorporate public transportation. Kemp Burdett, Cape Fear Riverkeeper. Again, I'm not like a sustainable development expert here, but I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that if we can, you know, reduce the amount of cars on the road, I, I live on the other side of the river. I'd love to reduce the amount of cars on the road right now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, definitely lots of, of um, you know, reasons why considering things like public transportation would improve um, 
our local environment. Air quality uh, would improve the amount of impervious surfaces. You know, you could you could start doing less, you know, six-lane roads around town if, if more people were using uh, bikes. There's been some discussion recently about, not, not to open a huge can of worms here, but this rail realignment project that might open up a lot of, um, of a kind of a loop around Wilmington for, you know, maybe alternative forms of transportation. That so, could be its own Cape Fear conversation. Right. Um, so, yeah, very, very much support the idea of more walkable, bikeable uh, communities. So there's been a lot of discussion on those who are moving here. Uh, they need new housing is kind of the idea. How much, how do you balance that with the quality of life for those who are already living here? First thing that we have to do is stop allowing people to move here. <laughs> McKay Siegel, partner at East West Partners. Pull up the bridge. JC's earlier point, we roll up Highway 40, we put gates up at both entrances, and we say no more. Quick question, raise your hand if you were born in Wilmington. The rest of us apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of joke about that question because usually... We get blamed for bringing people to the Cape Fear region. Uh, a lot of times, always, if you build it, they will come. First of all, that's a Field of Dreams quote. That's about a baseball field. Stop telling me that. <laughs> Second of all, that's not true. Nobody's ever been on their way from New Jersey to Florida uh, and seen our beautiful apartments and gone, honey, stop the car, unpack. <laughs> I want to live in these apartments in Wilmington. Holy cow, I've never seen anything like that ever. So, so stop thinking that development is bringing people here. Jobs are bringing people here, and, and most everybody agrees that new job creation is a good thing. Uh, and then the location is bringing people here. The fact of the matter is we've had retirees since 2020, and I think 2020 accelerated this. We've had so many retirees come in, and they bring a basic form of income, which is stable, it's dependable, and it's coming from outside of our economy. Those retirees need health care. They need haircuts. They need groceries. They need transportation, fuel. They create all sorts of other jobs. And either we can put them close to the city where they're going to go for all of those things, or we can put them out into the suburbs, and then they'll drive into the city for those things. There's nothing that I can do to stop them from coming. All we can do is control how and where they live. Un unfortunately, the, the answer is people are going to continue to come here. Um, and I say unfortunately. For a lot of you, unfortunately, the answer is people are going to continue to come here. You're going to have new neighbors. And that's what I find in a lot of these situations is really what people aren't telling me is they don't want any more neighbors, uh, which is a really unfortunate way, I think, to live your life. Um, but as long as they're coming here, we can make development more responsible. We can be ecologically minded. We can be traffic minded, uh, which really, again, really is what people come when they say they don't want more neighbors they really just don't want to wait longer at the traffic light because it's, uh, it's a lot you know it, it's so long as we're we're going to build new development we can just kind of make it a little bit better every time that's really the plan if you're just joining us that was mckay siegel at east west partners speaking on our panel on development as part of cape fear conversations jeremy had a question about the relationship between development and traffic so let's talk about that what what are the traffic impacts of bringing in all these new apartments, and how can they be mitigated? What are we looking at here? Really, this is really a Glenn question. I'm going to do my best, and then Glenn's going to correct me where I'm wrong, but I really think I can explain traffic, uh, citywide traffic, in, in under 30 seconds. The farther that people drive, the more traffic there will be. In other words, if I have to be at my job at the hospital at 8 o'clock, then I need to be at the intersection of Oleander and South College by 745. If I live two minutes away or if I live an hour away, I still have got to be at that same intersection at 745. The difference is how many miles do I drive after that intersection? 
right? So if you're looking at it from a planning perspective, what you're really looking at is, is the total miles driven. So all things being equal, I want there to be less miles in and out every day, right? Rush hour traffic, 8 a.m., 5 p.m. I want people to drive not 20 miles to work. I want them to drive two miles to work and two miles back. I want them to drive four miles. If they're driving 20 miles in and 20 miles back, that's 40 road miles per car. The closer I can get them to work, which in the case of all cities is downtown or a, or a business center, the closer I can get people to that, the less traffic that there will be, period. And that's really, really hard to explain when 300 apartment units go up at your intersection. It's really, really, really hard to explain. It's hard to believe, but that's how it works. We have a problem with traffic getting in and out of the city of Wilmington. And that's exactly what you're speaking to, McKay. We know that now, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the farther you build out, the more you load the streets, and the more there's pressure to put another lane on the highway. So we get back to the concept of maximizing the city again, maximizing infill development, maximizing uh, the, the infrastructure that's already in place, the roads, the sidewalks, the streets, the police stations, the fire station, et cetera. Forgive me for maybe bringing up reporting that I did two or three years ago, so I might not remember this exactly correctly, but there was discussion about having a comprehensive plan that focused on nodes of business and job centers with grocery stores and concentrating the density around those nodes. Was that the city of Wilmington or was that the county's plan? That was in our plan. We okay. had a, there's a specific map in the plan that you can open up and make nice big two by three feet and it identifies those nodes. Um, and by the way, that can apply to the county just as easily as the city. As long as we're building, we can build in the county if we have nodes, but if we're just building spread out residential development, that's the recipe for traffic, and that's what everybody hates. But if we can, if we can pick a spot, you know, Castle Hayne or Ogden or Middle Sound. And by the way, Brunswick County is also creating its own service base, which is helping a lot with this whole bridge problem. People don't recognize it. It could be a lot worse. But because Brunswick County has developed its own service base on the west side of the bridge with their own Lowe's home improvement, their own restaurants, their own hospital facilities, as somebody mentioned here, for, thankfully, people can find services also in Brunswick County. They don't need to come to Wilmington for everything, and that's a good thing. We also had a question specifically about affordable housing and the relationship between affordable housing and crime and public safety, if anyone would like to address that. <clears throat> I'll speak to it. That's Pastor Rob Campbell, an affordable housing developer. You were talking about traffic, water runoff, crime, crowded schools, uh, decreased values of real estate. Uh, the statistics have shown that uh, affordable housing is not hurting the residential rate of return on their investments. The um, thought of crime, when you start saying affordable housing, um, people immediately think, I believe, those people that are going to come into my neighborhood and um, as the lady said the other night, that she doesn't want to fight off a 17-year-old and, and, and petition for a fence where there was already a fence behind her house. She wanted another fence. Fear is a real factor. So I, I give some grace to the people who are fighting for their right for their house and uh, as I'm fighting to develop. And that's why it's incumbent upon... Um, the county officials, the people at the planning boards to try to leave their biases 
at the at the door and and be the ones that divide the baby uh, even as we talked about traffic no projects are being approved without if they need a traffic study they have to have a traffic study uh, water runoff you're not getting through this process without addressing it but it doesn't matter those who are who bring uh, their issues they push the fear buttons and they push those things uh, that they're um, afraid of and again I think we have to we have to have the political courage to deal with this problem or all of our plans all of our partnerships all of our persistence will mean nothing I'm gonna circle us back to the endowment conversation if you could just snap your fingers and the endowment would grant a project or grant an idea that you would want funded. <laughs> We've got a notebook at the ready in Terry's hands. <laughs> I would love to hear from each of you what you think could be done to help with community development in New Hanover County with the snap of a finger. Pastor Rob Campbell. I would say that the endowment should follow through on their efforts to pull the 24 organizations that put in for affordable housing convene us together, uh, look at the gaps and the overlaps, and then when, when we've done that, then finance it so we can begin to close the gap on this affordable housing uh, in our community. Riverkeeper Kemp Burdett. I'm not talking about affordable housing here, but um, I think identifying places in the community that are at great risk for misuse and have a great opportunity for uh, public good uh, a great opportunity for green spaces and parks and, and places where people can go and enjoy without um, running the risk of being trapped there in a hurricane. I think identifying those places and trying to help uh, preserve and protect those places for the entire community would be great. Former Director of Warm and Planning Commission Chair J.C. Lyle. I'll go next because I um, apply for grants all the time. And there's a lot of um, government contracts, there's a lot of uh, money out there for the, the program materials, for lumber, for contractors, for HVAC units. What we're really missing to pull this all together is infrastructure. Um, a public uh, awareness campaign like is listed in the Workforce Housing Advisory Council recommendations. A, a central place, like what if we just bought 305 Chestnut and turned it into a housing center where we actually all knew what each other were doing. Warm um, held a summit in April and we had some great ideas going with all of our housing partners as we put together our proposal for the endowment together and um, we kept having ideas and somebody else had already was already doing that and we didn't even know so pulling us all together in ways that we we are frankly are just not ever funded to do um, by other sources so there's a huge opportunity to fill in gaps and leverage all this other money it, that's coming to our region um, for housing Developer with East West Partners, McKay Siegel. If I had $50 million in We're going to ask you to contribute. It's no. <laughs> <laughs> usually how it goes. Put your beer on my tab. Uh, if I had $50 million in one cent to give away to the public good uh, of all the different things, I would give $50 million in one cent into preschool education, full stop. That's out of my lane, unfortunately. What I know is housing. If, if I was going to say, okay, 20% of that needs to go into housing, I would be very, very careful about how that gets stratified. 
one of the things that annoys me the most is that we don't understand there are different problems to, to this problem. This is not just one, it's not just the single mother that walks in with two kids. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of different product types. There, there is new housing, that's what I know. There is existing housing that needs some loves, that's what JC knows. And by the way, that's a lot cheaper than what I do. There are old apartments that are getting bought and flipped. If you're, if you're going to give $10 million a year into housing, I, they just really understand there's a difference. Please don't try and pigeonhole it all into, mm -hmm. it's this one person that needs housing. Mm -hmm. New Hanover Community Endowment Network Officer, Terry Burhans. Your, your comment about preschool, so if we're really talking about 30% of somebody's income, how important is it that they have access to affordable childcare and preschool, right? The because the that helps. So, 100% yeah. the best thing we can do. And last but not least, former city planner Glenn Harbeck. Well, I can't let go of Terry's comment about building communities rather than subdivisions. I would have the endowment partner with the city and the county at least, maybe the towns too to accelerate the construction of bike paths throughout the area, out the urban area at least, and sp especially serving areas where we believe that uh, workforce housing or low-income housing might benefit from the ability to get to and from jobs and services and, and put $1,000 in their pocket every month so that they could uh, apply that to uh, their rent or their mortgage or their saving to actually become an owner of a house. That's it for this episode of The Newsroom. Thank you to all our guests on the Cape Fear Conversations panel, and thank you to Waterline Brewing for hosting our live event. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or anywhere you get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments on today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. Thank you to the WHQR production team, Ken Campbell and Mark Breedy. Our editor is Ben Schockman. Stay tuned for future Cape Fear Conversations events that you can attend in person. If you have thoughts or comments on today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.